This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the 2009 film Agora, and the theme is decline. Helen, kick us off. Religion is not religion, or at least it isn't necessarily organized religion. What defines religion is not its aesthetics or its recognition as a canonical set of practices and beliefs, but rather that whatever we believe in, a commodity, person, god, enemy, we hold to it or them with a transcendent investment. We believe it or they can close the gap of lack that we are necessarily marked with as speaking subjects. Religion is the ideology of promise. The ideology of promise tells us that the impossible task of closing the gap of lack is possible and that someone or something holds the key. This is a power of totality. Totality which in fact is never actually total because it doesn't include lack and it can only be granted by an undivided God. To be a capitalist holding to the idea that a commodity has the power to close the gap of lack is to believe, perhaps unknowingly, in an undivided God. Capitalists are religious believers, much more than many of those who participate in so-called organised religions. In organised religions, an undivided God is acknowledged and is often external. There is the Jewish God, for instance, whom one can recognise and assuage with various weekly practices and then get on with one's daily life. More often than not, especially today, when the ideology of capital has seeped into every crevice of our so-called secular world, our gods are unrecognised, they are unconscious. Thrown into a chaotic world without choice, torn from our mother's breast and thrusted into a nexus of surreal and orderless signs, we yearn to return to a place we once knew was safer, but we can never get there. To enter into the world and then to later be born into speech are indelible wounds, the prices we must pay for human subjectivity. To return to oneness is to die, although we never really return to oneness, even as our atoms become earth and certain rock, everything is divided, substance is subject. Perhaps we can say that to return to oneness is to lose the experience of division at the level of our own subjectivity, that which separates us from animals. We are forever marked with an absence, with the sense that we have lost something, that we are without. Sine in Latin, as Christianity recognises we are all sinners. We yearn to absolve ourselves of this feeling, and when the contingent political and economic moment we live in is in freefall, in decline, when we feel anxious and precarious, as by definition we are made to feel by capitalism, this is how it thrives, we tend to believe that someone or something can absolve us with even greater fervour, even greater mistaken certainty. This is the lesson of fascism, a religious phenomenon intractably wrought by capital. When in 1919 Germany was blamed entirely for World War I, when impossible economic conditions were thrust upon them by the Allies, when their economy was weak after their defeat, when inflation set in, temporarily assuaged by US loans, when the Wall Street crash then caused the retraction of those loans, when people were desperate and when the moral ideology of liberalism dictated it was their fault, a utopia was painted for its people by Hitler. This utopia was certainly and absolutely theirs if only the enemy that was hovering on its horizon, blotting it out, was annihilated, cast away. As Marx says in the introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, the wretchedness of religion is at once an expression of and a protest against real wretchedness. Religion is the sign of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. In Agora, we see a society in decline. The Christianity, quote unquote, on display is a weaponized right-wing deviation of the best of it, a violent, soothing ideology promising a utopia of betterness contingently resting behind an enemy that must be annihilated, amongst them the philosophers. This shows well that even the most left-wing practices can be weaponized and transformed towards the right. As soon as a utopia, a world of cosmic balance is created, enemies must be generated and aesthetic of leftism enters the territory of the right. Stalin needs his gulags. The uh, Democrats, their deplorables, or the quote-unquote left-wing of capital, its contrarians. Utopias are fantasies, always right-wing. As long as we exist in this universe, there is no promised land, nothing better than the emancipatory, broken, ever-present. This is a broken promise that we don't need enemies to sustain. This is the message of philosophical Christianity found in the writings of Paul. God, quote-unquote, like his universe, is broken himself. The cross is the divided absolute at the heart of everything. The X marks the spot on God's non-existence. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hegel is a descendant of Paul. Marx is a descendant of Hegel. Hegel is a philosophical Christian and he doesn't even know it. For Hegel, the best of Christianity is merely a philosophical delineation of what the left actually is, politics itself, the universalism of contradiction. Politics is the tarrying with it within the material reality of social groups. Philosophy, as shown by the practices of the philosophers in this film, is the tarrying with it at the level of thought. 
Religion, by contrast, is the locking down of contradiction into absolutes and therefore opponents, enemies who are, ne who are necessary to sustain the illusion of absolution. Religion is the opposite of politics and the opposite of philosophy. Marx again. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their true happiness. The call to abandon illusions about their condition is the call to abandon a condition which requires illusions. Thus, the critique of religion is the critique in embryo of the veil of tears of which religion is the halo. In his dialectical materialist reading of religion, it is both the blinding vision religion provides that blots out the contours of our reality, making it impossible for us to create a better world. The precarious, unsupportable, anxiety-producing conditions of the worst of capitalism lead us to use the crutch of religious thinking to get us through the day. We can't get rid of religious thinking without addressing toxic material conditions. We can't get a handle on what we are dealing with in terms of the true dynamics of the material conditions without using reason to see clearly the operations of our religious thinking. Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers from the chain, not so that man shall bear the chain without fantasy or consolation, but so that he shall cast off the chain and gather the living flower. This, I think, is the project of the lack, using the universalist practice of philosophy to elucidate the chains, which might lead to the creation of better material conditions, which might in turn lead us to break the chains and pick the living flower. When we can accept the ordinary grimness of our marking with lack, we can move beyond the utopian thinking that characterises religion, we can get away from enemy-making, and we can work to build a better world for everyone, including those that our previous religious ideologies needed to be sustained. The problem we face today is that material conditions are so dire that the practice of philosophy has been so denigrated and that the chains are so unconsciously held that the contradictions of our world are so repressed. Being brave enough to recognise what precisely we are dealing with is the first step. Religions of all kinds, protecting their adherents from the trauma of a society in decline, are fierce and fervent. They all share one thing in common. They are right-wing, papering over the intractable contradiction with the promise of something, quote-unquote, whole. We are only left-wing when we avoid turning contradiction into opposition. This is the political, philosophical, a-religious, universalist turn. There is no promise here beyond something low stakes and reasonable. Freud's ordinary unhappiness, Marx's living flower, the joy and struggle of the broken here and now, but in the murk and messiness we can perhaps get beyond the toxicity of capitalism in its ascendancy and what inevitably results, a society in decline. All right, Nina, you're up. Okay, so um, Agora, well, I, I must admit, I found this film very difficult to watch <laughs> and I, uh, I struggled to finish it. And I, there are several reasons for this. And I, I suppose, I mean, it's not particularly interesting, but I'm going to outline why I found it difficult. One of which was the... I suppose the genre, um, in the sense that even though it was ostensibly and you know relatively historically detailed and and you know, unique film about Hypatia, who's of, uh, after all a very interesting figure for the history of science and for philosophy and for for women, um, and that it dealt also with the uh, with Egypt and Rome and Christianity and all of these very very big. Uh, molar categories of belief and and tendency um there's something about these sorts of films and i'm so unused to watching them now i suppose not that i was ever particularly into them but something of, about the the epic um or the the grand scale the kind of action film um even at the level of violence and the depiction of violence that i found that i find extremely sort of unbearable in a way and and also a kind of um the 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 sort of formulaic com compartmentalization of things like ideas, romance, individual characters, and then these molar categories of and these blocks of being, and I and I I felt like the way that the Christians were depicted was just uh, really horrific, <laughs> and um, in particular, although although the way in which every every group was was depicted in terms of its tendency was I found difficult too, and I think. I then started looking up the questions of historical accuracy and surprise, surprise, it turns out that the film is extremely historically inaccurate. And for example, the burning of the Library of Alexandria didn't really happen. The, the library declined uh, a long time before this film is ostensibly set and it, it wasn't burnt down except for maybe a tiny bit accidentally once by Julius Caesar. And 
in any case, it wasn't this great destructive action by a load of, you know, philistinic idiots. Um, and the invention of the astrolabe happened a lot earlier. And actually, we don't know that much about Hypatia other than she was burned by a mob and and so on. And uh, so I, I kind of got very irritated by the the composite inaccurate nature of the film. And I, I was therefore uncertain as to what its um, drive or desire was, other than to shove in a load of potentially spectacular things together and then also sort of misrepresent the tendencies of different groups by, in a way, depersonalising them. And the only people who were allowed to have characters were like the three or four main people who were like the, you know, Hypatia and and the, the sort of the lucky slave and her father and and so on and so that leaving leaving the film aside and it's 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 obvious limitations and genre questions um you know and and perhaps it's a bit strange because I do after all enjoy playing Civilization Five which is not dissimilar in a certain sense to these kinds of um epic type uh, cinematic events but I think perhaps the difference there is to do with my own investment in thinking about civilization when you're playing Civ Five, you can uh, think very carefully about the kind of culture that you want. And I, I in, invariably lose and I almost play to lose on the basis that I am interested in how far you can get with religion and culture, which ultimately leave you open to being stamped by anyone who's just interested in war and science. And in, in a way that the game tends towards the end in particular, towards the, a kind of a complete, uh, sort of uh, fusion of war and science and this is sort of almost inevitably how the the game ends you can you can shoot a rocket into space or you can basically nuke your opponents and and you know defeat them by taking their territory um and it's very very difficult actually to win a kind of culture victory or a tourism victory uh, at least the, usually when the, the kind of men that i play the game against they they tend to opt for the the science or the war <laughs> um and so, but nevertheless, leaving aside my sort of, you know, uh, antipathy towards this kind of uh, cinematic product, and also the, I don't know, the sheer amount of waste involved, the, like how expensive it, it costs to make this sort of film when you think, what a waste of money. You could make like, you know, 20 art house movies about, you know, the micro nuances of people's emotions or whatever. I don't know. Would I even want to watch those films? I'm not sure I would either. Uh you could you could buy some aviaries and I don't know bird feed or whatever, whatever I think is value valuable. But the question then of decline or collapse is a very interesting one. And of course, in a way, all civ all civilizations collapse, and we may or may not be looking at a kind of global collapse situation. Um, certainly, it feels like there's an end of a particular kind of civilization, liberal civilization, and you think in these these large historical terms about how is it possible, for example, that something so ostensibly uh, beautiful and vibrant as ancient Greek culture, how could this end, you know? And yet we live in the wreckage of Greek and Roman civilization. You know, we're surrounded, if you're fortunate enough to be around ruins or, you know, and even pre prehistory um to, to understand that these uh, cycles or whether they are inevitable, the rise and fall of civilizations, these grand processes. Um, and then you start to think, well, why do civilizations collapse? Is it due to some, it's either got to be from within or from without or a combination of both, let's say. So civilizations collapse because of some internal tendency that becomes completely out of control and in a way undermines their their own premises, something like this. And Ivan Illich, who I'm obsessed with, I'm teaching and starting to teach this week, is obsessed with this idea that the corruption of the best is the worst and that all is all modern institutions are basically um, sort of mirrors or examples of the church and that the original premises of the church, the Catholic Church, have all devolved into uh, perversion of the institution itself. Um, and if you like, we're living in the, the wreckage or the perversion or the, the reversal of Catholic um, uh, brilliance, if you like. Like the civilizations that succeed too well in the end fail um, because they're 
they're so brilliant. And and perhaps, you know, we can think about the Roman Empire in this way, like the, the over-expansionist nature, you know, it's its desire to, in a way, Romanize everywhere becomes too big. And then, of course, you can have takeovers, you can have invasions, you can have these different ways, incursions into... And, of course, Athens was often at war with other places constantly. And, you know, there, there's always, let's say, a threat, both from within and from without. and then I suppose you might think of a concept of history and whether history itself is linear or cyclical. And this is, I suppose, very, very basic thought. And it, it's it's a thought that's a question for all religions in a way. Like either religions are eschatological or they're cyclical. Basically, they either begin and end and usually end in some apocalyptic way or the second coming or, you know, something that's both both an end and a new beginning. Um, or they are cyclical and everything repeats, like I, the idea of the Kali Yuga or the kind of, you know, in Hindu and other religions where everything is a is a, a circle or a cycle and you have golden ages and silver ages and bronze ages and iron ages and everything declines and there's inevitable decline before there's another golden age. And we're in the, the bad one, <laughs> according to certain ideas. And yes, I, I suppose simply this in a way like does our how does our conception of time or not not even time it's history and history and time aren't the same thing of course but how does our conception of history then shape what we think we should do right so how does the concept of history shape how we understand politics which is to say another way of asking the question of how we should behave and if we are in a way, confronted with the idea of our imminent extinction or apocalypse, which is a Christian stroke model, which we are now also in with the environmental movement. And this idea of extinction, I mean, the fact that extinction rebellion is so-called, you know, this this kind of um, really end of days, and they dress like end of days figures. They dress often in these strange costumes as if heralding and ritualising the, the last days. Um, is it, in a sense... Better to think that history is cyclical or to think that it is linear, or at least what is what are the consequences for each of those those forms of thought? All right, I'm up. So I really like this film, and I think it has often been misunderstood. It's about the destruction of the Serapam. It came out in 2009 at the height of the whole debate about new atheism on the internet. And the people in that debate became fixated on this film, and each, I think, took it in a wrong direction. On the one hand, you have a set of new atheists trying to argue that the thesis of the film is that Christianity destroyed the Roman Empire, and that Christianity destroyed the Library of Alexandria. And on the other side, you have Christians who want to defend against that those claims. But I don't think the film is making the claims which the new atheists claimed it was making. For one, I don't think the film is about the decline of the Roman Empire. The Serapeum was destroyed in 391, but Alexandria was not captured by the Arabs until 641. Roman rule lasted another 250 years in Alexandria. So it's not about the decline of the Roman Empire. I also, you know, it's it's not about the burning of the Library of Alexandria. It's about the destruction of the Serapeum specifically, an extremely important pagan holy site in Alexandria and the place around which the Neoplatonic philosophers gathered during this period. And there were really two major uh, focuses of Neoplatonic philosophy in the late 4th century, one in Alexandria and the other in Athens, each of which had a, a dismal fate over the course of the ensuing couple hundred years. Many of the Alexandrians, after the destruction of the Serapam, went to Athens, and then under Justinian, the Athenian Academy was forced to close, and many of them went in exile to Persia and couldn't really find a home in Persia, of course, because Persia was full of Zoroastrians and eventually ended up coming back, but were never really able to reestablish an academy. Right? So th there is something that happens during the destruction of the Serapam, something very significant and something which many scholars of late antiquity focus on. It's not the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. It's not that superficial. It's not the destruction of the Roman Empire. It's something more complicated than that. So I, I picked decline as the theme, but what is declining in Agora is not the Roman state, but the possibility of theological and philosophical pluralism. 
For most of Roman history, many different gods were worshipped in different parts of the empire. Different sects came and went, and as long as these congregations complied with Roman law and preserved the Roman peace, they went untroubled by the Roman state. Polytheism allowed for a kind of illiberal pluralism. It was possible to worship one's own gods without denying the gods of others. The gods were taken seriously, but this did not preclude coexistence. Monotheism, on the other hand, was a source of trouble. Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism all denied other people's gods. These denials produced religious conflict and disturbed the peace. The Christians did not just want to be tolerated or freed from persecution. They wanted to rip down pagan temples and put an end to pagan rituals. When the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, it legitimized this hostility to pluralism. Under Constantine himself, little changed, but as Christianity slowly strengthened and more and more young Roman aristocrats chose to become bishops, those bishops began pushing emperors to end pagan practices. Constantius, too, tried to ban sacrifices in closed temples. He was followed by Julian, who tried to restore paganism. The Valentinian emperors tried to cool things off and reduce tension. But after them, a new, younger generation of Christian emperors came to the fore. And Theodosius was chief among these. He was willing to take things further than Constantius. And by 391, Christian emperors had ruled for nearly a century. The Christian population was a lot larger than it had been under Constantine and Constantius, and it contained many more members of the aristocracy. So in years past, pagans had often been able to persuade emperors to show restraint, to uh, not make edicts, or if they were making these edicts, to make them broadly unenforced or unenforceable, right? But now these pagan aristocrats lacked the numbers and influence to dissuade Theodosius. Emboldened, the bishops tested their limits and often found they could get away with quite a bit. So for much of the 4th century, it was possible for Roman aristocrats to be either pagan or Christian, but as religious tensions heated up, the political cost of being pagan increased. So in the film, Oscar Isaac's character converts to Christianity, even though he himself was a devoted follower of the pagan philosopher Hypatia. By becoming Christian, he can be a magistrate, and by taking on a political role, he hopes to protect his teacher. But Cyril, the patriarch of Alexandria, is not so easily overcome. He accuses Oscar Isaac of submitting to a woman and of having falsely converted to Christianity for political advantage, and Isaac is unable to defend himself against these charges. Another of Hypatia's former students, Synesius, becomes bishop of Cyrene. The bishop tries to protect Hypatia from Cyril, but he can only do this if Hypatia accepts Christianity. She declines. Even though Hypatia has had many students who have risen to prominent positions within the Roman state, and these students remain steadfastly devoted to her, they are unable to protect her from the patriarch. The cost of their political and theological careers is steep. They join imperial institutions hoping to protect the very philosophical pluralism that those institutions are now intent on eroding. But when push comes to shove, they cannot protect even this one woman, let alone the ways of life she represents in the film. To accumulate influence, they aided and abetted Christianity, yet the influence they have accumulated is not enough to save Hypatia, unless Hypatia abandons her beliefs. And if she did that, what would they have saved? Just the woman, not the way. I see a lot of similar dynamics at play today. A lot of people are pretending to believe ridiculous things so that they can have careers. Some of the best of these hope they can use those careers to defend intellectual pluralism. But by conceding so much to those who wish to impose a dogma on all of us, they only embolden and empower the dogmatists. As the university systems fall one by one into ruin, fewer and fewer people have access to the kind of education which fosters virtue and encourages critical thinking. A false binary is being drawn up between a reactionary conservatism which clings to old values and a progressive liberalism which emancipates. The possibility of genuine value freed from dogma becomes ever less accessible. What is declining is not the state, but our capacity to be fully human, to live full lives, to reach our potential. As liberal capitalism disappoints, it uses fear narratives to shore up its fading legitimacy. It leans on accusations, on individual blame. The liberal capitalist state is using dogma to survive, and in doing so, it is cannibalizing the very pluralism that was once its best argument. In much the same way, 4th century Rome shored up its legitimacy by embracing a dogmatized version of Christianity. The state strengthened itself by preying upon many of the best things it created. It ate its children to survive, and survive it did, not just for decades, but for centuries. Great. Well, I, I sort of retract my uh, 
my review of the film. But I agree with you. I actually I can't watch it as a film, but it's interesting. No, but I I mean now now it seems much more interesting, and I didn't know that actually it was part of the kind of new atheist or that that whole discussion at that time. I mean, so that sort of makes more sense now, Um, and I appreciate your historical corrections. Um, But yeah, I it's. and and the palimpsest mapping that you're doing basically which i which i understand completely and i i agree about the the perils of adopting dogmatic ideologies um and the effect that has on institutions i mean it's and the people in them <laughs> and the people sort of increasingly excluded from them and and actually how this encourages decline and collapse and i you know, it's quite possible that we are on the verge of a collapse of the university system, you know, for various reasons. I mean, it seems very clear that, let's say, there are too many universities, whatever that means, in the first place. Um, the mass expansion of higher education, along with the mass indebtedness of increasing numbers of young people, um, alongside, I suppose, the decline in not only values, like you said, virtue, and critical thinking, but also, I suppose, the the untenable tacit hierarchies that still exist and that are rarely acknowledged at the level of, you know, which universities count and which don't, you know, and and the kind of injustice, I suppose, of people, young people being nevertheless in the same amount of debt, let's say, for completely different mm-hmm differently valued degrees and yeah. and not to mention what's happened in the last 18 months and the fact that basically people are borrowing tens of thousands of pounds or dollars to sit at home and watch people on a video which they could do on YouTube for goodness sake and in fact the quality of people putting out uh, you know non-academic in inverted commas work online often far outstrips the kind of thing that is being taught at universities and I know and then the fact that the international students are no longer going to come that people aren't going to travel around the world to necessarily to to study elsewhere so I I mean I think let's say there's a positive and a negative um, imminent future for the university I think and and the positive way of reimagining the university would be something that is far more selective far smaller like in a way what it used to be far fairer actually though in a certain sense if it does indeed um and meritocracy is a very complicated subject but if they if there is a way in fact of finding the most able apt people for particular subjects and genuinely doing that properly you know and investing that the time in finding those people then you will encourage a genuinely critical and thoughtful class, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, that would be of benefit to everyone else. That's the point. I mean, okay. you know, the, the, the if you have a very select and small but very, very highly educated number of people who know what they're talking about in particular fields and genuinely add to the sum of human knowledge, then it, this is a benefit to, to all. There is no benefit to the vast majority of people, people endlessly churning out articles that are badly written, badly researched, add nothing to human thought um, simply for the sake of it. You know, you're, you're, you're literally turning people into machines um, and you may as well get AI to produce like 97% of articles written in the arts and humanities these days. Absolutely. There's so many things that you said that I, I like completely agree with. I have to say, I couldn't finish it. I confess. I think as a, as a film, it's not, and I, Alman, um, Amanabar, I think is a great director, like the others, the sea inside, so many great films, but this one, and it, it makes me think like, because it's in the English language, does he not quite get the, you know, is there some like missing, missing meaning or missing sort who, of like, who is the director for this film? Um, Amanabar. He's a Spanish oh, okay. director and he kind of came to prominence quite young with a few successes. I believe he did, you know, um, the, what inspired Vanilla Sky in a, in a Spanish language with Penelope Cruz and he did mm-hmm. the others and stuff. The others is good and it's in an English language, but I have made films not in English, so they probably fail as well, you know. Anyway, but um, but yeah, it's, just this, it's interesting that it's that tied to the New Atheist thing. Um, Peter did this quote-unquote debate with Lawrence Krauss 
in 2013 and it was fucking hilarious because um, Lawrence Krauss in his sort of I know everything, I'm a famous person, I'm a quote unquote public intellectual and Peter, Mr. Nobody, um, he thought he was religious, like a religious person. And so he made Peter, instead of it being a debate, Peter had to go up and do like a 15 minute intervention, which is basically just saying the stuff that we always talk about. And then Lawrence Krauss was like, abort, abort, what the fuck is going on? And then he sort of thought he won the debate, but like everybody who watched it knows that Peter won. Anyway, this is the thing of like this, this arrogance of absolutism that there maybe is like a whole other way of seeing the world. And as Girard and many others see, say that we don't actually live in an oppositional world, we often live in a world where our visions are completely different from one another. You know, that the whole map through which we read a given situation can be different. Um, but yeah, you know, and just picking up what you said earlier on, you know, about like um, the Illich, I don't know about Illich at all, but like the, the, the success is its failure, you know, that the success of, a, of an empire or a, or a, um, a system, you know, within that is its failure. And of course, within capitalism, success is, is its failure and within its failure is its continued quote unquote success. And so I think the, I always use the example of fascism in Germany. It's at the point when um, liberal capitalism is as it's most successful that we are most likely to get the highest amount of suffering and inequality and resentment that leads to fascism. But within the universities, this, this, um, you know, Blairite um, bowing down to education as if it's this sort of transcendent totem that can save us all. And in that belief is its very failure. Um, and its overproduction is its failure. But also, it, the, the, I think we're going to talk about this on the B side, the enter, entry of capitalism or the capitalist mode into education is its failure. The professionalization, the systematization is its failure. As a former teacher, I can absolutely, and luck, well, Actually, I take this, but I was going to say that we weren't, didn't have as many pressures because we weren't offsteaded at this particular school, but actually they were turning it into this horrendously over-professionalized surveillance teaching system. And all of these sort of techniques and starters, plenaries, objectives, blah, blah, blah. in that you get the shittest teaching, often, not always, often, you know, often some people need, you know, that having a systemized thing can work, but I think you lose the brilliance of certain teachers which is the brilliance of education within that kind of systemized um, approach. But yeah, the, the, the film itself, I think we've talked about this before with loads of different films. It's just like, you can have good ideas, but then, you know, we were talking about, what was it? The Canyons. The Canyons works maybe as a poem, but not as a film. So maybe this works in a way, but not as a film. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that this is a film that I think everybody would like. Uh, it's IMDb is not especially high it's higher than the canyons but not especially high <laughs> i it came out in 2009 i was 17 and i think teenage boys like epics and if you're a teenage boy and you see an epic you're going to like that epic when you're older because you're going to associate it with that period of life uh, i think that's there's that's a reason why there are a lot of adult men who still pretend that the star wars movies are good <laughs> I, I got over that. Also, but, Rachel uh, Weisz helps. Isn't she quite attractive to teenage men? I, I think a lot of guys like Rachel Weisz, sure. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's a different kind of epic from a lot of the epics that came out during that period. And if you're if you're a boy who likes history films and wants history, it's very hard to get a whole lot of history in film without the epic. The epic is the genre that tends to bring history into film. And I remember as a, as a boy just being very excited that there was a film about the Romans that wasn't principally about Jesus or Spartacus or Julius Caesar, as the overwhelming majority of films about the Romans tend to be about one of those three people. It's, it's nice when you're, when you're that age to watch a film that's about some other part of history. And it kind of, uh, increased my level of interest in late antiquity, I think, when I saw it. It uh, caused me to be more interested in what really was going on in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. And so often I see people talk about the Romans as a kind of trope for whatever it is that they want to say, and people don't really know anything about late antiquity. They just kind of have their narrative of what was wrong with the Romans, which is always their narrative of what's wrong with their own era. <laughs> And it, it's nice to, to actually go and dig into what happened in late antiquity because there are 
continuities and there are discontinuities, I always get something out of reading about it or thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that seems fair enough. I, I suppose maybe when I'm watching these sort of epic films, I I think to myself, I should just be reading a history of this instead. You know, like something about the slowness and the additional, you know, romance or violence or whatever, you know, these other things that are in there. I just sort of think, you know, I should read a book. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that, you know, that people can't enjoy these these things too. But you go to a state school in Indiana, nobody ever assigns those books or points you to them uh, or even leads you to believe that you could read them. You know, yeah. When you're 15, 16, 17, you have this impression that all of that is for college students and that if you tried to engage with that material, you wouldn't have much luck. It's a very discouraging institution that I, you know, I came from a, a place where we really were not being asked to do very much. I was going to say, by the way, in relation to, you know, talking about state school or whatever, um, public school um, and Nina and I when you, when we did Exchange we talked about this a lot this guy Will Noland and Eaton and stuff um, and I still this is not my idea but I think it's actually quite an interesting notion just about um, this idea of education and you said you're talking about, Nina about like people getting access to a brilliant education and that maybe some people today are lucky enough to contingently get it and perhaps we might think that old institutions are places where you can get it and I think Certainly, the place I think where I got the best education was um, I went to ENS in France. There are three departments, and I went to the one in Lyon, and I was there for a year. I didn't do any homework. I didn't do any exams. It was just my year abroad, and I think I got the best education ever there. And it's a place where they take 30 people a year per subject and a few and some more. You can go in without being a normalien, and it's like, that was pretty good. Um, but basically, a friend of mine, he did go to Eton and he would be categorized probably as a yuppie in uh, Benjamin's categories. Um, and if you haven't read it, I suggest you very much go and read Benjamin's latest blog. It's very good. Um, he, his idea, so we're talking about this guy, Will Noland, and the rise of sort of wokeism at Eton. And I had been sort of like, this is such a silly thing to do. It's going to be the, you know, this is it's a complete antagonism with the institution itself, blah, 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 blah. And then this friend of mine said, well, actually... Perhaps it's a symptom of the fact that Eton trains you to be part of the elite, and perhaps it's identified that now you need to, you know, believe buy into these dogmas in order to be part of this new elite as it is today. So it's actually not a stupid thing, but you know, some kind of intention, or at least seeing that it needs to happen. So therefore, the point being, just pointing out the state school, private school thing, perhaps even most especially some of these elite universities and elite institutions are no longer elite because even they are buying into, it used to be, you know, in the aristocratic mode of things, those who didn't need to work, those who were part of an elite institution were outside of the capital and capitalist ideology and could sort of just do, you know, practice virtue and the arts and this and the other. Obviously, we saw under Blair, capitalism entered into all of these institutions. Private schools are capitalist institutions, obviously, and we might have thought that Eton is so far whatever removed that they can do anything they want. But actually, that, in my experience, some of the most quote-unquote elite institutions, we had the vote of the staff at Cambridge who voted against certain policies, and I think that was a good sign, but places like Oxford, potentially Eton, you know, are not places anymore, question mark where this kind of ideal of education is to be found. Yeah. I mean, private schools are still technically charities, are they not, to some extent? So I think there's there's an interesting, and this goes for English and Welsh law in general, like it has all these potentially inbuilt limitations to the incursion, you would hope, <laughs> of certain other dominant ideologies or, or or economic systems. But I, I agree with you that I think one of the interesting things that we saw in the past year or so was basically this, you know, the cathedral, the ideology of the cathedral, to use Mulbug's <laughs> idea, but, you know, the, the sort of dominant uh, ideology um, reaching its apex, like, like you know, um, almost like wild firing through all of the institutions at a vast rate of knots, including up to and including the elite institutions, right, as you said. So this came to Eton, this came to Cambridge, this came to Oxford. And there were obviously forms of pushback, there were forms of recognition in a way, because 
I mean, one of the obvious consequences of of identifying quote unquote privilege in a very hierarchical education system is the fact that, um, you know, well, what are you going to do about these extremely elite um, institutions? It's not enough to have the guilty supplement, you know, the ideology that says that you are privileged, that but you shouldn't, you know, you should feel bad about it. Like it, social reproduction is social reproduction, right? And and the reproduction of this ideology alongside the reproduction of um, the particular class is going to be kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's it's going to hit a wall, like it has to, you know. And at some point, I think. People are going to say, "Look, this is just how it is." Like you know, there there are people who, you know, and the, the you know the problem with private schools it has always been, and of course, private schools are a strange thing anyway because the really rich people had tutors, you know. So the the reason why they're called public schools is because they were for the slightly less rich people, exactly the aspirational, way. highly bourgeois strivers who yeah. wanted to enter into the a position exactly. like the aristocracy, yeah. And then they kind of took, you know, overtook the tutor model in a certain way and became, you know. But there's obviously no correlation between how much money you have and how smart you are, right? Like it's blatantly unfair, mm-hmm. right? It's clear that there are yes. lots of people who have a far greater intellectual aptitude and capacity who are being very uh, undereducated or ignored or, you know, they're not, if we really cared, if we had a kind of pro-intellectual culture, it would have nothing to do with money whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? It would simply be those people who demonstrate aptitude and, and then you'd you'd have a culture that poured all of its time in a way to identifying the capacities of all of its citizens and you know we we're not even citizens we're subjects but (laughs) in the UK but it you know and that's what you would do and you would you would reward excellence however you know and and um, but we don't have that we have this very mixed system which is kind of highly ineffective which I think in a way also allows precisely for this very very regressive ideology to to take hold um and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't really know what to say about it other than I think if we had a complete reform and overhaul and redistribution, in fact, of resources in the education system, such that it was based on a really, truly, and, and then you'd have the whole question about how you measure intelligence, whether we're talking about IQ tests, whether we're talking yeah. about, you know, uh, that's a whole nother question, very, very difficult question about how you actually identify capacity. Um but as it stands, I think, you know, a lot of universities will fall. I think private schools, I'm not sure what will happen to them, whether they'll, they're like half of them will go. I don't know. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, I went to private schools and I'm very much against private schools. However, I think private schools are a system of a society rather than a necessary cause. And then they become, you know, they are a symptom that generates a cause just that everything is sort of dialectical. I've noticed today, especially in the industry I'm in, that is very unfair, um, very elitist and very repressive of what the actual dynamics of the elitism are. And this leads to toxic resentment when people have succeeded and when they haven't. And there's a massive enemy making at the moment around the notion of um, private schools. One thing I would say is that, so you'd say like, this person's successful and they went to private school, this person's successful and they went to private school. It's like, Private schools are full of many different types of people, and it is all related to money. Some people are there for free. Some people are there tied to their jobs. Some people are there on scholarship, merit scholarships, quote unquote. Some people are there from abroad. Some people are there, you know, paying full fees. Some people are there because their grandparents once had money. And I think that the success of a lot of people, of course, it's to do with class, which is to do with resources and to do with embeddedness in, in, inside certain um, social hierarchies. You're seeing now, especially within the media people, as we, as you were saying, Nina, covering over their quote unquote privilege with this dogma of identity politics. Um, but often the people who are successful, they do have money and therefore they went to boarding schools and, and all these different schools. But many more people go through these schools, which isn't their choice, it's their parents' choice. We, through this sort of toxic striving ideology of promise, sacrifice huge amounts and it doesn't pay off because the symptom of going to a school, it's almost like it would be interesting to see today, I think was different in a time where there's much more social mobility in the 60s. What happens to people who go to school on bursaries and scholarships, whether actually it makes any difference or whether it's the wealth that sets people off in their careers. And therefore, the going to the school, as Nina points out, once the tutors, now the private schools, is is a result of having wealth. And all these people that have believed or their parents have believed in the ideology of promise that these schools endow whether actually they work because I really don't think it's worth it and I really think that 
For instance, France tries to deal with this question of elitism Mm -hmm. related to education in different ways. And you have these grand écoles and, you know, you do this special uh, exam process to get in and it's mostly done. The best schools are quote unquote state schools and they do try to get people from different areas. But often what will happen is, you you know, you say you live in a region, you will go to one of the schools, Louis Le Grand, Henri Cat or whatever, in some of these arrondissements, which are like the most expensive places to live in the world. So in order to get into those schools, you have to be fucking loaded anyway. So unless there is a societal shift in terms of redistribution, in terms of tax also, we're going to talk about this in the B side, the respect for teachers and teaching as a profession, and it is a properly well-paid job, I think we're fucked. So I think that often people today, just to sum up this point, are kind of have the, when you're still um, believe in the capitalist ideology of promise, you try to pick out any kind of marker that can distinguish why someone has something that you don't. And you have this intra-elite, uh, real resentful, resentiment fueled anger, finger pointing about this person went to this school, this, 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 when I think the reality is much more complicated. We need to understand the dynamics of what generates boarding schools and, and private schools in the first place, which I think should not exist in the best of worlds. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, take, I take all your points and I, I, you know, I, let me, let me be clear. Like, it's not anyone's fault that they go to private school. I think, you know, blaming people for the decisions of their parents is a kind of false move. And lots of people on the left make this move, I think. And obviously some people who happen to be rich also happen to be clever. And historically it was people who had free time who were able to kind of think and, and come up with some of the most interesting philosophy, theology, and even science. You know, so so it's not that the one excludes the other. I suppose it's that, you know, what what really motivates me when I think about education is is I suppose the, I don't know the the sort of tragedy of people who have great capacity and great potential, not, it, either it not being recognised or it not being um, I don't know fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I suppose it's that anything that stops that from happening, and of course, private schools have scholarships. Of course, they try and do outreach. Of course, you know, of course, Oxford and Cambridge try to sort of, you know, make amends for people's perhaps slightly weak education. And you know, if you go to a comprehensive school, they they are like they're very bad for certain groups of people. They're very bad for people at the very bottom, and they're very of of intellectual ability or focus, and they're very bad for people at the top. Like all all secondary schools, comprehensive schools, can do is really get people from a D to a C, and that's their entire like remit, if you like. So if you are very thoughtful and get a lot done, you're left on your own a lot to your own devices, and in a way, it's not bad. Like there's an interesting stat, or it used to be true that. If you went to a comprehensive school and you got to university, you were more likely to get a first than people who got a private school because precisely you you were used to working autonomously and in a way you were set up for the kind of research and that kind of independent learning that was in fact ultimately rewarded um, at university level and that people who'd been spoon fed and, and actually had done very well in exams, but because they'd been kind of coached and schooled and, you know, were actually sometimes struggled to become independent researchers mm-hmm. of the kind that inf- used to be rewarded at universities. <laughs> Not clear that you are actually rewarded for being an independent researcher, at least at undergraduate level anymore. So I suppose, you know, there, there are limitations. And it. so I'm not even saying, if you like, that there shouldn't be hierarchies within schools I mean I at the same time I think everybody who does everything that's socially useful should be valued and rewarded you know that this isn't just about education it's about an entire map of how we all relate to each other and and I think Benjamin talks a lot about social roles and I think this is you know part of the the question it's like you know so I mean I understand the hysteria and the frantic desire on the part Mm -hmm. of some parents to do anything to get their kids to look special or different and you know to stand out and like I get that because if you have a kind of really value you know where you don't know what the values of a society are and you don't know where you are in it and you think I don't know you can understand why people go Mm -hmm. mental like you know and 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 kids get take this on and become extremely anxious and they don't you know they also go mental and that's not good this is terrible this is terrible for everyone I hope I didn't sound like I was saying that you were saying that you think people who went to boarding schools are immoral because I don't think you do at all (laughs) it's just something I've seen on Twitter recently that has been so extreme it's been Cecil the lying extreme yeah the resentment is real. Resentment is real. Like yeah. it's, it's been very like when I was really, really crazy. Part of my resentment became about this fantasy of the ruling class, and I thought that 
ruling class people had a form of knowledge and and that I didn't have access to and this is part of my kind of delusion and what I realized was partly going on was my kind of endless you know sadness in a way that I didn't get to study Latin and all these amazing languages and go to a good school and you know that that and part of it came out in this when I was a bit mad you know that it was based on this kind of um resentment really you know and, and sadness and and those things are very real they're very you know class is insane absolutely but I think as well the system as well that we have at the moment is de- like I, I couldn't say design because I don't think there's a mind behind it but it, it, it is all about stoking anxieties and you don't have this and if only you had this would you know and I think when we come to address education, part of a way to understanding it in like the universalist best sense of the political is to, is to not think in, in utopian terms about it and to say that actually we should abolish boarding schools not just because of the unfairness, but because <laughs> they don't work necessarily. Well, I, I think that we've kind of gotten to a point of, of no return in terms of the political economy of schools and universities. And when I talk about the university system collapsing, I don't mean that the university system is economically collapsing, that the universities are ceasing to exist. Rather, what I mean is that the function of universities as associated with virtue and, and education, that that is increasingly not their function, that instead their function is a way of delaying adulthood so that a large number of young people can be kept out of the workforce for for a few years and kept out of trouble. Uh, these people become indebted, so they have no economic flexibility. They are forced immediately into the workforce so that they can pay their debts. And I think that what, what has happened is that the universities have been stuck in this problem that is revealed in this film, where if you have an academy or a school and it doesn't interface with the power structure in an appropriate way, it will be gotten rid of. And therefore, universities and schools have had to find ways to interface with the dominant ideology of their periods and with the state's legitimation narrative. And they've had to find a way to say to the state, look, we are justifying your existence. We are offering a legitimation narrative. We are raising a new ruling class that will accept the state and Mm -hmm. accept roles within the state and not one which will try to challenge it, right? And so because of this, we get a whole period in the Middle Ages where all of the major schools are making priests and monks and theologians, right? Because that's the legitimation narrative of the Middle Ages. And for a school to justify itself, it has to in some way be attached to that. So all study of the classics is mediated by theologians and priests, right? What is going on today is that there is a closing up of what you can do in the universities, And this closing up is about getting the universities to perform a legitimating role for states, for liberal democracies. Liberal democracies feel that their legitimacy is insufficiently strong, and they want the universities to do the work of constructing better legitimation narratives for capitalism and for liberalism. And so what is happening is that there's a closing up of space in the elite institutions for any kind of real dissent. At the same time, you have this enormous population which believes that by going to university, it enjoys some kind of right to education or some kind of access to education, right? When in practice, the vast bulk of universities are just turning out job coupons, (laughs) coupons that you can use to get different kinds of jobs, right? And they're turning out those coupons in numbers such that their value is diminishing in different subjects at different rates, but their value is diminishing. And yet, if you don't go to university and you don't get one of these coupons, then you are dramatically uncompetitive. So because of this, the universities can't go away because people can't just choose to not go. Because if they choose to not go, then they're at the back of the queue, even for jobs which formerly did not require a university education. So because of this, this lower tier of universities, and this lower tier includes most of the big state universities, most of the big state universities in the United States use textbooks and don't have real reading lists and don't have any kind of specific education. The professors give entire courses through textbooks made by companies like Macmillan or McGraw-Hill, and these that their assessments are quizzes and tests, the answers to which can be found online if you Google them. So most of these state universities are not doing education. They're going mm-hmm. through a textbook that they've bought that it comes down from a company that is heavily ideologically invested in producing a certain kind of docility. Yeah. Right? So that's the bulk of the universities. And then you have the elite universities, which formally were different 
and had different education and didn't do textbooks to anything like the same degree. But now those elite universities are also being penetrated by this. And especially in the United States, they're being penetrated very rapidly and very totally. But it's not resulting in the university going away or in the ordinary person having the option to not go. Instead, you are economically compelled to go to university. If you don't go, you can't get a job that gives you a sustainable, stable income. And then once you go, you will be indebted and you will be subject to intense propagandizing. And that's the direction that it's going in. And it's going all the way up to the top now into the ruling class because the ruling class is the only area where anybody is enacting any kind of resistance. And of course, because it's only occurring within the ruling class, that resistance is broken and, and poorly structured and insufficiently embedded in all sorts of relations. But it is the, the remaining bastion of critical thinking. And it's, it's now almost completely extinct in the United States. And this Americanization is spreading through the marketization of the university to every other country and to every other university system. So when I say that the university systems are collapsing, they're unable to do the work of actually educating people anymore. They are just a mechanism for distributing job coupons for, for the bulk of the people. And then the top tier universities are preparing a ruling class to reproduce this system and to be content reproducing this system. And I think that's, that's what's going wrong here. And I don't see any real possibility that there could be any reduction in the number of universities because of their connection to job coupons. So I do think that the, the, the sort of the elite realm is where the um, indoctrination is happening, happening, the justification mechanism. But the thing is, so it is highly religious. It is highly ideological. It is highly capitalistic. It is highly divisive, opponent making, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what often happens with religion is those who are the greatest adherents in becoming, you know, getting to the core of something, see its absolute antithesis and ridiculousness and are able to break out of it. So often the greatest believers in a, in a religion are those that become, you know, that are, and it's those that sort of don't really think about it that maintain the thing. So if we're getting so many people who are being, you know, for years indoctrinated, and these are people who perhaps, I mean, as Nita points out, that, that there is absolutely not a one-to-one connection between eliteness and intelligence <laughs> seriously um at all um but let's say there are some who are able to think surely that by leading people with a few brain cells to this indoctrination you're going to get a huge just as many people are indoctrinated you're going to get a huge number of people who go to the very core of it see its ridiculousness and are therefore um very much against it. That's why I picked this movie, because you have people in this movie who get that level of education, are embracing Christianity performatively as a career mechanism so that they can protect intellectual pluralism. And these people are, are doing this purposefully. They're trying to embed themselves in the elite institution to protect the things that their propaganda otherwise will crush. And they're not able to use those institutional offices to actually in practice meaningfully protect the things that they've set out to protect. So even though they see through it, they're crushed by the institution, utterly and totally. Then you do have people like us, maybe, who, and I think there are met, like, what sometimes annoys me about online commentators is that they think that they're the only people who are putting forward this idea. So you say, see people, it's like, oh, my aesthetic and set of ideas I talk about on my podcast are X, and any time anyone else says it, they've taken it from me. I see this all the time. But I think that there are millions of people who see things the way we do. What do they, what happens to them? Surely at a certain point, you know, I mean, are we all just, are we all just like, just squeezed monetarily and forced to conform? Like, what happens? Well, we'll talk about this more on the B side, which <laughs> we ex explicitly plan to do about the university system. We've very much kind of given you a trailer for it here on the A. We're going to go all the way in on the university system, the political economy of it, where it's going on the B side. So we hope you guys will join us over there. And to do that, you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the lack podcast. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time or over there. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.